This is Tom. I'm a secret necrophiliac. Not anymore. <laughs> I'm Steve Gaynor, and this is Tone Control, Conversations with Video Game Developers. Uh, I'm joined today by a special co-interviewer, Mr. Michael Abbott of the Brainy Gamer uh, blog and podcast. Hey, Steve. Hey. How you doing, man? Uh, Good. Uh, We're we're here at IndieCade in L.A. I mean, this thing is going to go up a long time after that, but uh, I'm in L.A., Michael's here for the show, and uh, Tom Bissell lives here in L.A., uh, and today we're going to be talking to him about his experience uh, as a writer and as uh, how, how his career went from writing non-video game stuff to writing for games, uh, some of which uh, have come out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Gears of War Judgment was the thing that, uh, that you ended up shipping uh, most recently. Uh, how's it going, Tom? It's going uh, terrifically well. Good. I'm, I'm delighted and honored to be here. Well, I'm glad that's going terrifically well. <laughs> I, I feel like you're probably known um, within the circle of people who are actually going to listen to this podcast, uh, as well for your criticism and writing about games and your book, Extra Lives, as you are for writing video games. Um, but this, all of the game stuff is really a stage of your career a fairly recent stage of, of your career because you were a, a published writer of essays and novels for years before uh, before you actually got into game stuff, right? Yes. So how did you? I mean, how did you? How did you start as a writer in the first place? Like, well, my father was uh, in the Vietnam War with a writer named Philip Caputo who wrote a book called The Rumor of War, which was the first big bestseller about uh, the war in Vietnam. It came out in 1977. My dad is actually in that book. And uh, Phil and my dad stayed friends after the war. And through Phil, my dad met a writer named Jim Harrison, who's probably most famous for writing Legends of the Fall. And uh, he's a Michigan writer, and I'm from Michigan. And Phil and my dad and Jim Harrison would hunt for pheasant in the fall when I was a kid. And Phil and Jim seemed to me like kind of larger-than-life figures that drove really nice cars and seemed to have really interesting lives where they didn't seem to have actual jobs and yet did whatever they felt like doing and would often have like hardcover books that they'd give to my dad. And I'd look at them and see these blurbs from like uh, Le Monde in Paris and, and uh, uh, La Corriere in, in, in Rome and, and uh, you know The Telegraph from London. And I would think, and Jim Harrison wrote about the Upper Peninsula of Michigan where I'm from, and I'd read these books, and it was a very important realization for me to have that, like, you could be where I'm from and write things that, like, outside authorities regarded as literature. Yeah. And so I got this idea that um, being a writer was, A, really cool, B, had no apparent structure, and C, appeared really financially rewarding, which, in <laughs> retrospect, was, was a kind of disastrous assumption for me to have, but... Um, well, it was I, working out for those guys. I right? worked out for them, yeah. <laughs> so why not? Uh, well, they both wound up having like huge IRS problems later ah, in life. Right. But um, oh, that'll okay. But so I had the writing bug put in my head pretty early by them, and and you know, 
I really kind of skipped that intermediary stage that I think a lot of writers have where they read like, you know, young people's literature and then they go up to YA stuff and then, you know, gradually they'll get to um, like, the you know, they'll open the liquor cabinet and start reading the hard stuff. But I really went from like reading X-Men to reading like Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man and, and there was there was no intermediate stage for Portrait me. Portrait of the Artist as a Young X-Man. Uh, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Colossus really... yeah, or a Young Cyclops. <laughs> So, um, and that was really their influence, and um, I, there's really nothing else I ever wanted to be, other than a police officer. Two, two very, well, two uh, noble professions. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, I had a weird, that was really the only other thing I ever, like it ever occurred to me to want to be, and I, I have no idea where that comes from, but there, yeah. there it is. But most authors don't get shot at by people so it is the safer choice in <laughs> it, some ways it is yeah you're not gonna get a pension though so it's yeah, true um so so you so you were you were writing i assume along with reading the the hard stuff from a young age and then you went into i mean you studied like writing in college mm-hmm. and and we're trying to get published like but, al- but always play video games too at the same time <laughs> well so what were the video games you were playing in college um, okay, I can tell you. That is my phone, and I'm going to turn that off right now. <laughs> Sorry, audience. Unless, uh, um, you know, I should silence my phone, too. This is just good radio. I'm going to, I'm leaving this in. <laughs> I could cut it out. <laughs> why, would, why would you? Yeah. Not to. Why would you? Um, so I was playing a lot of Nintendo 64. Um, I remember playing the those amazing Star Wars games, the uh, Super Star Wars. Do you remember the, those yeah. those two D yeah. Yeah. Uh, platformers? Yeah, which were amazing. Stuff, uh, and and uh, Sega Genesis NHL ninety four. Yeah, like, yeah. The NHL games were good there in the early to mid nineties. Yes, they were incredible. They were real ass pieces of video games. Yeah, right? they were. They were. Well, it was, that was the that was the NBA Jam era where it was like, oh, we can make sports really accessible and fast paced yeah. and fun and extract abstract them into a good video game mm-hmm. as opposed to a sports simulation. You know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sure. uh, Fantasy Star Two. I remember being completely blown away by Lee my Alexander senior year of high school. <laughs> Fantasy Star Two is amazing. And then uh, I didn't play that much during college. And yeah. then after I went to the Peace Corps, when I came home from Peace Corps, sort of my tail between my legs because I was a Peace Corps dropout. I was, you know, I got my what my eight hundred dollar check from the Peace Corps. And was back home in my hometown, and you know, when you're 21 years old, you don't. You're like 800 dollars. My God, this will last forever, you know. And, and so I went to uh, Kmart and I bought a PlayStation, and then I bought Resident Evil One, which yes. knowing nothing about it, good. Brought it home, <laughs> yes. put it in, and my brain fucking melted. And that was the first game for me that was like. Whatever is happening here is incredibly weird, different, and from that moment on, I was like, "This medium is um, is just something I want to pay attention to for the rest of my life." Yeah, no, I, I, one of my birthday parties. It must have been, ugh, when did it was that? Nineteen ninety six with the PlayStation Seven. 
Okay, so yeah, yeah, it was when I was in tenth grade. I rented it was back. I rented a PlayStation One from Blockbuster because yeah. they would rent you the hardware. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I rented it with uh, Loaded, and which was that I don't know if you all remember. It was like a super gory, super violent top-down shooter, and with Resident Evil One. And yeah, Resident Evil One is like this is like nothing you've played on a game console before when it's when it comes to being nineteen. Yeah, you know, nineteen ninety-six. There was nothing else. I mean. Looking back at it now, I know that it was essentially alone in the dark, but right. better production values and slightly better <laughs> controls and gameplay and stuff. But just like like you were saying, way more vivid, you know, um, yeah. and intense of an experience. It felt it was the closest approximation to a living nightmare that I that I'd had at that yeah. point. Way scarier than any movie. Yeah. Um, and the most haunting moment, and still one of my favorite gameplay moments of all time, is when you play as Chris. If you play as uh, Jill, you can play the piano in that one room. You play you play Mozart's. Um, what is it? Which which piece? It's um, uh, for Eliza, I think. Okay. Uh, for Eliza, as, as a college German speaker. <laughs> um, Jill, you can just sit down and play it, but Chris can't play it, so you need Rebecca. And she like struggles through it. She doesn't remember piano very well. And as Chris, so you have to like walk around through the hallway mm. while she's fumbling her way through the song. And I just remember getting more and more distant from that room and hearing the the, the audio track sort of dip down and being a couple rooms away from her and hearing her fumble her way through that song. And I and I'd already played as Jill. And and, and I remember like the 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 variability of that moment. That yeah. Even though both stories, I guess, are canonical, if you're into that kind of thing, and they both go to the same place, it just it, none of it makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, the, the, like they, the, like both stories intersect in ways that don't make any logical sense. But that sense that the the game contained almost parallel realities that um, you could walk a room away from someone doing an activity and they still felt like a living being in the other room. Um, there wasn't like the sense of Irreality, right? It felt like, well, yeah. So it can, it's a persistence and a consistency, yeah. and yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. So, and the thing, I mean, what I love about a design decision like that is, I mean, I, surprising no one, I guess, from my point of view, I love the mundanity of that, where it's like the the variability of this experience hinges on one character remembers how to play piano pretty well, the other one can do it, but it's hard. And she's trying, and it's expressed through the wave file that they play of right. her, you know, and it takes longer, and so now you have to Deal you know, fend off zombies while she's trying to remember which key to hit next. And it's, it's so small, and has such a direct impact on the player. But I did this in Gone Home. I found tapes of songs, and I would bring them to different tape recorders in the house, and I would play them just to hear different songs in different parts of the house, <laughs> to sort of color... That were you area expecting something to happen, or like I didn't you were know. Just curious to see. I was it. just curious. I was like, "What yeah. if I take this tape and I play it in the other?" There's two, three tape recorders. Uh, I think there's, there's four total. There's, okay, well, anyway, but yeah, no, there's a, there's a handful of them throughout the house. Yeah. And so I was playing different I was wrong, songs and different. Five, whatever. So I, just, I, would, I can count. How anyway. would you know? <laughs> I was I put them there. <laughs> God damn it! I was playing different songs in different parts of the house and. Specifically thinking back to that Resident Evil moment <laughs> of what, how it just changes the environment to have something else playing yeah. in the environment. This is sort of pre-internet, 
right? So like Resident Evil One, one yeah, was so, unless you were an early adopter, yeah. unless you're on CopyServe, right? Like yeah, the yeah. Which I certainly was not. So did you talk about like I'm just curious about how how you process that game compared to how you do it today? Like, did you find yourself compelled to ever want to write about that experience, or did you like talk with people about it? Or was it like a purely solo thing for you? It was well, I was with my friend Mike, my best friend through high school. And through college, we played it together. And I remember at one point, we just could not play anymore because we were too scary. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know, the part that I remember that being is when you go out into the yard and into the fucking yeah. like, greenhouse. That was scary. And, and you house. think you were done. You thought you were done. And then it just gets worse. And then the hunters come out. Yeah. And you just chop your head off with one. Well, and there's some shit where like you go outside and there's some fucking bees. Or, like there's just like insects trying to fuck with you and you're just like why is why won't this game leave no, me alone it's no, dark outside it just keeps getting worse I'm not inside a hallway where I know where the walls are there's just a sky fuck this <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but you get the, ryth- the rhythm of it though I remember the rhythm of it like you feel like it's just been too long since anything bad happened like it's got to happen any second yeah that feeling of just the pattern of things yeah and yeah. so the way the game would trick you into thinking that there was going to be something like right now but no it would be like four more beats from now yeah just the pounding dread of, of, yeah. of that I also remember I think around that area is where the uh, semi-legendary itchy tasty note was which is lived on uh, do you know this this note so I'm sure I do but well it's so the, the, the last line of the note for a certain segment of people uh, it holds a special place in it. So the, the idea is there's a scientist who had gotten infected, and so he decided he would keep a diary of himself turning. Yeah, yeah and, and so it's, it's super interesting as a piece of, like, environmental story or, you know, like, the kind of stuff we think of as being, you know, whatever, Bioshock-esque or, or something where it's, it's like, oh, this note from the specific character that's not here anymore. That you never made. Who exists and, only as an absence. And, uh, you know, it's like, I've been infected. I have. I only have so much time. And he's tracking, like, I. my skin is changing. And then it just goes to hungry, meat, want, going to get meat. And then the last line is just itchy, tasty. <laughs> and then it ends. And I'm just like, this is unbelievable. Uh, and yeah, you know, because like that, that game is derided for being so poorly translated and voice acted and stuff. Which but, it like, is. Yeah, no, it absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. and not in a way that I think was like super clever, self aware. I think it was just <laughs> fucking goofy, you know, whatever, um, bad FMV game. But then there were these little aspects of it, like the piano moment you mentioned, or this moment of of this this one written page. That I think are super impactful. So it's yeah, it's a strange game. It's all over the place. And those F and B moments were mind blowing at the time. Yeah, I mean it, it was like pretty impressive. Stuff. They they were certainly kinetically directed. Yeah. Uh, you know the opening is like it is disorienting, and there's a lot of handy cam. You know running through the darkness with yeah. the yeah. sounds of the 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 Cerberus chasing them and all that kind of shit. My favorite line is right in the beginning when you come into the mansion and Wesker goes, "Wow." What a mansion! It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, a good game all around. <laughs> what's, so, the, what's the other line I like so much? Hold on. Uh, no, I, I'm nothing. Um, well, there's berries. You're the master of unlocking. Yeah. But, but there's one other one that he said. I, I can't remember. When you're on. playing as Jill, uh, Barry finds some blood and he says, <laughs> I hope it's not Chris's, Chris's blood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there's good stuff. <laughs> I, I, I remember a polygonal snake coming out of a fireplace. 
There's a lot of polygonal stuff in that game. <laughs> well, here's the funny thing. So when uh, when Resident so Evil when, sure. when Resident Evil Four just came out on PSN recently, the the high the the remastered yeah. version, the thing, and this is the crazy way that games get in your head. I'm just playing through, and I played Resident Evil Four. Like that was a real another mind blower. Mm-hmm. That that game pretty much determined the tenor of the, a lot of games for sec. You know, shooter games for, for shooter up games. to the present. Yeah. So I'm running through the second half of the game and I'm coming up to like, you know, because you're cutting the barrels and boxes a lot. Yeah. And I would, and I remembered where the snakes were. Because <laughs> like four or five boxes or, bar- or, or viv vases have snakes in them. Yeah. And there was this weird, like almost spider sense when I had when like I drew back with the knife and I was like, oh, no, no, wait a minute. <laughs> and I'd back up and I'd shoot it and a snake would pop out and I was like, <laughs> What part of my brain remembered Catalog the recoil moment there? <laughs> what part of my brain had that in there? Why cannot I remember any of the languages I've tried to learn? And yet I still vaguely have a sense of what boxes have snakes in the Resident Evil 4. It's bananas. Is, is it, I mean, it's a certain kind of mental association, right? Like, I assume it's like a very unconscious association with just like the lighting of that space and right. the angle you approach it from right. and I mean some people have that kind of very natural fluid association of how words in another language flow together right I mean spatial reasoning and recognition and just that kind of internalization uh, brain chemistry I guess sorry you're better at Resident Evil than German <laughs> it's just what you rolled dude yeah, I don't know I guess that's my genetic uh, <laughs> makeup um, Snakes and boxes registers the the the, the uh, ablative case in Estonian does not register. <laughs> so so yeah so what was as far as your path as a writer, what was what was the first thing you had published? Uh, I published a short story when I was like twenty years old, and then um, I wrote several novels when I was in high school and college. But the first real thing I published was this essay that was in a magazine called the Boston Review, which is like a literary journal. Um, it was a literary essay about happenstance in the lives of famous writers, like how close mm. we've come to losing some very famous writers' work and how often just sheer accident shades saves it. Huh. And I used Melville, Emily Dickinson, and Walt Whitman as examples. Mm. That was the first real thing I published. And then shortly after that, I wrote an essay about a movie Jeff Daniels made in my hometown for Harper's Magazine. Huh. So those were my first two real pieces. And then shortly after that, I sold my first book proposal. And, and then my stories, I started publishing them. And uh, I worked as a book editor for five years, yeah. from like 23 to 20. Eight, twenty nine. So, is it like copy editing stuff? Like, no, like or? acquiring books and then oh, editing okay. them and okay, writing yeah. copy and stuff like that. I right. started as an assistant and then just got a series of very lucky breaks and then became a, like a full editor when I was twenty six. Yeah, and then was a was a uh, did that for a couple of years and then. Um, I feel like uh, so just from a from a, a process standpoint, I feel like there was a point where I did not know what the shape of going from not having a game to finishing a game, like making the thing look like. And I feel like that's where I, now I know what that looks like. And I can, if I was, I've done it enough times, I'm like, okay, you know. And and I feel like I'm sure as a writer of like multiple published books, that's where 
a writer is, I still don't have a sense of the book just, process. Yeah, just what like like what it can is it is it possible for you to describe like the steps, like the the how you go from not having written a novel to actually having the finished thing that that's that's between two covers? Yeah, um, it's pretty easy, actually. It's much less complicated than games, <laughs> certainly. Um, you know, you sell the book to an editor, and then... Um, so, you, so you actually pitch to an editor, you're like, here's the book I want to write. Oh, because it, it's like you get an advance so you can eat while you write it. Well, it really depends. If you're writing fiction, you don't usually get advances. You usually have to sell the finished thing. If you're writing a nonfiction book... You have to. You often can sell a proposal. Okay. I was in a weird position in that I had a novel that I'd written that my agent sent out, and no one wanted it. But one editor said, "You know, I read his piece in Harper's, and I really think he has a nonfiction book in him." And my agents were like, "Well, he doesn't have a nonfiction book on the block." And um, they, my agent and this editor, started talking about me as a like I was in the Peace Corps and. My agent said, well, he's thinking of going to Uzbekistan to write about the Aral Sea disaster, which is the world's largest man-made ecological catastrophe. And um, she convinced this editor to make me an offer for a book about this subject, which is weird. It, this, it's such a weird story because, like, I had no say in this, in this <laughs> project. They just cooked it up for me. You basically me. got an assignment. Yeah, I got an assignment, huh. which is it's absurd. It would never happen today, or at least I have a hard time imagining what happened. So I wrote the book. I gave it to my editor. She whacked it down you get it back you take or reject the edits then it goes to a copy editor and then you get and that is a crazy edit because you know copy editors are they're the programmers of the literary world right yeah, yeah. Um, these incredibly and you know helpfully anal retentive people who you know make the world function more or less sensibly yeah. and then you get it back from them and then you take those comments and it just goes away for a while and then you get what's called page proofs which are the like the the type the laid out the laid out yeah. version and then you read it again and then well see the thing that the thing that I can't conceptualize is the part between here's the book I'm gonna write and here's where I hand it to my editor you know like as the person like I don't know I I can I can think of it in terms of a fucking high school essay where it's like you write the outline then you write the long version of the outline yeah <laughs> but like I don't know like is it is it even something that that you can concretize of like the steps of the process to like actually conceptualize and then organize and execute the the just, actual content. I just know? I've always, everything I've ever written has been just totally by the gut. I don't really plan that much. I mean, I have a vague sense, but I just you just write it end from end to end. You just start writing. I just write it from end to end, and huh. you know, whenever I open whatever I'm whatever I'm writing, when I open up the file, I start from the beginning and I rewrite it all the way through. So by the time you finish it, you've rewritten it. However many dozens of times yeah. so by the time I usually get to the end I'm pretty done right and then it's just like cutting yeah um, and that I mean honestly that that part of the process sounds very familiar where A when I, so you know I'm essentially like my my day to day thing I do is level designer you know so and I don't have any idea how I see levels get made all the time but I don't know where you start I mean I start on paper and I you know I you have the concept and then you're like so I guess I need these rooms and they'll be laid out about like that but it's it's just like a you know it's thumbnail ish it's it, the 
shape and the proportion of the room isn't really important, but like the basic <coughs> uh, scale of one room to the other and how they're arranged and how they connect and all that kind of stuff. Just so you know, like you can refer back and be like, oh, right, the door to the other place is on the east side of, you know, so that you don't have to keep it all in your head. But going from paper to in editor as quickly as possible, you know, like be confident in your layout, but then just start making the actual space before you really go deep on, on paper. And then, yeah, like, like you were saying, build it. At least I personally build the space in the order I expect the player to encounter it, mm -hmm. usually. Um, but it very much goes in passes, where it's like super simple, box, box, basic shape, stairs, door, box, you know, and then in the order the player's going to encounter it. And then you have the whole thing. And then, yeah, it's, you go through and look at it again from the start and start adding detail and, like, honing in on where everything exactly is going to go and what the proportions are and stuff. But the, the thing that, from what you were saying, as far as, like, whenever you would open the file, you just start from the beginning and be editing, that's very much like what the what the polish pass phase of working on a level is for me where it's like okay i've got everything in all the stuff you have to interact with and whatever it's there it's not good yet but you can go end to end and click on everything and like complete the the thing and i just start playing it from the beginning and i encounter something that's fucked and i take a note and I encounter a couple more things, and they're broken, I take a couple more, and I just quit and fix that stuff. And then you start playing from again, and then once you can get from the beginning through the first room, you don't have any more notes, right. <laughs> you keep going, right? Yeah, Until yeah, you can play through the whole thing, and you're like, I don't really need to fix anything. And that's, you know, a process of months, generally, because, like, you make something, you do that to it, you get away from it, you make some more stuff, you do that one, you come back to the first one, now you've got a bunch of new notes for it, but like hopefully by the end, like you were saying, you've played through everything enough times that if you don't have any stuff left that you really need to fix, it's probably okay. Um, you know, if you watch writers edit their work in the stages after they've written it, a full, a full draft, Yeah, this is true because I've seen it on your table. You see it in academic writing too. They don't edit it on their screen. Right, they're going to print the whole thing out in this big stack, right? Because it's, there's something about the process of having those physical pa pages in your hands. Like, yeah, if you're editing it from that stage. You really are like getting your hands into the document, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that there's something really important about that. It can't be done on the screen. No, I can't do real editing on screen. Every writer I've ever seen does it that way. That's you know, right. when, yeah. when you've got the the, the big, the, you know, before you turn it in, you're going to be basically pulling pages out yeah that's interesting because at least for me all when i from the writing side i do all of my content creation like i do all of my draft stuff longhand on paper and then you can see when you're like scratching shit out and whatever and you know my stuff is of in no way like the word count of like you know a chapter that you'd be working on or something it's more like okay here's a couple hundred words and it's one note or something and you it's wrong and you scratch it out until it's fine and then you type it in and then you edit you do micro edits from there but like for me it's really important to like the entirety of gone home is in two notebooks from like the level layouts to the design ideas to the story structure stuff to the actual like first drafts of the notes and the audio diaries but yeah having having it like on a page 
before it goes to digital. So, so yeah, so so you were you were you were publishing stuff like like early, but you were also doing like editing and, and stuff like you were saying, and so I became familiar with your work when. I think it was the GTA 4 article, probably. <laughs> you, I read it online. You and everyone else. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, 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 went, it went big. Yeah. It was a viral hit among <laughs> video game nerds. Um, well, what's so funny about that piece is that it was originally written for GQ. Yeah. It was supposed to be an... I was just going to write an essay about games for GQ. And then I realized I wanted to write a whole book about video games and sold that to my publisher. And I knew that whatever I was going to write about GTA was going to be the last chapter of it. And I was going through some semi-serious drug problems at the time. Which you were very open about in yeah. the essay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was part of what the essay was about. And so I wrote a lot of extra lives like on Coke. I, a lot of, like 70% of the book I wrote with ready access to cocaine. Maybe you can tell, maybe you can't. I don't know. The GTA piece I wrote absolutely stone cold sober and and you know when you're writing on drugs for you know several months as i had been when you go off them a despondency and a real despair creeps in because mm. you know um you learn to associate the output of words with whatever the drug is doing to your head and you take away the feeling that fizzy feeling of because i was a weird kind of drug person i didn't do drugs and hang out with people and go dance i just did them to sit at my computer and just work and that's a toxic mm toxic relationship to have with drugs what was it was it i mean because it's a intense stimulant was it like for concentration I don't yeah know, I yeah know I, would, I would just be i would become like a just a you know laser beam of focus yeah at first sure right but then what did i mean were you ever so like conceptually i have occasionally been interested in like those fucking like drugs that kids Take when they're trying to cram. Yeah, yeah, like you know, that just yeah, make you mega focus. Because like we were talking about, like so I don't, I don't read a whole lot of like novels because I'm really slow at it, and it's because I have really short attention span. You're reading Infinite Jest, however, which we need to. I'm looking at it right now. On the yeah, here. it's you don't you don't say I don't read a lot of novels when you have the novel sitting on your table right here. It's the only thing I've been reading for months. Okay. <laughs> I, I started reading it at GDC. That's where I am. That was eight months yeah. ago. Right. It was it was six months ago. But uh, I also shipped a game <laughs> in there. But, you know, these, these things happen. Um, but the point is, there's something that seems very attractive about being able to actually concentrate on one thing for hours at a time, which is not... Like, I try to isolate myself so that I can actually concentrate on reading. Like, I'll read in the fucking bathtub. And it's because I'm in yeah. water and I can't get up yeah. trivially. I can't just reach out and get my phone, you know, because I put it in the other room. And I'm in a tub uh, of, of liquid. Um, but it's like the idea of, oh, but there's this stuff that could make it so you could actually just pay attention to something... For an extended period of time, like that's at least conceptually oh, attractive. It's, it's extremely attractive, and then you realize that that's an illusion, and um, it just becomes a hangman's noose that just gets tighter and tighter. The more you do it, the less you can concentrate, but the more you need it, and then you're fucked. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. And you're fucked. So I wrote that chapter thinking it was going to be the part of the book that GQ was going to take, and then they rejected it. And then no one wanted it, and then the book was done, and the book was coming out, and then The Guardian um, read the book in galleys, um, and then they're like, we want to take this, you know, an edited version. So a lot of people think that I wrote it as a standalone thing and then built a book around it or whatever. And I've seen people say, you know, he wrote that piece about doing cocaine and playing video games and then decided to crank out a book afterwards. But it wasn't like that at all. Yeah, the book it was written as the book the last already existed. It was written the as the book, last chapter. Yeah. And so um, I was mortified because The Guardian didn't run anything by me and they titled it The Addiction Video Games. And I don't believe in addiction in the sense that at least that word has never meant anything to me. I don't think of it. I don't think of my experience with drugs in that way, and I certainly don't think of my experience with video games in that way, even though I fully admit I've had compulsive relationships with both. But addiction just seems too clinical and too small a word to actually capture my experience with either of those things. And so when that piece came out called Video Games, The Addiction, I was just crushed. Yeah. Because it was against the entire spirit of what the essay was intended to be. Because the essay was about, like, a a long-term relationship that you developed with the game in a specific context. Yeah, well, like, the subtitle of the essay said, for the last three years, Tom Bissell has been on cocaine playing this game. And the game was only two years old at that point. <laughs> so they completely... It was a... In true British journalism fashion, you know, a fact's too good to check. So, um... <laughs> That thing came out, and then everyone I knew was like, "Oh my God, you've been on drugs for three years!" And it was, and it wasn't like that at all. Yeah, unbroken. <laughs> yeah, and um, so that piece caused me a lot of grief in that sense, and it's still weird when people say to me, "That's the first thing of yours I ever wrote," because I felt like I might have read your thing about Cliffy B before that, right? But right. I don't think I was associating it with the, who the writer was. Right. I think I just read the thing. There was a Lamborghini somewhere. <laughs> yeah. There was a there was a there was some some uh, sprinklers that are going to turn off fire flamethrower. And so that was the first uh, that was the first piece on video games I ever wrote. Okay. For the New Yorker and and um, that was the first piece for the New Yorker I ever wrote. So. And and was that because that 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 ended up being part of the book. Yeah. So it was, but. When I wrote what, that Clippy piece, I had no intention of ever writing a book about video games. Okay, so so those were unrelated in that, unlike the GTA thing being the last chapter of that book, the Cliffy B profile was a standalone thing, and then it became yes. incorporated. Into and I didn't even book. think I was going to include it in the book, and I only slipped it in the book at the last minute. Well, because the thing is, like, in, you know, fast forward, you've had a long relationship with uh, Clifford Blazinski and the rest of Epic Games mm -hmm. and the Gears of War franchise. Yeah. And it started there mm -hmm. when were, did was that your idea or were you like pitched on the assignment of of, of doing this profile of Epic and, and Cliffy B and stuff? So my editor at the New Yorker is this wonderful guy named Leo Carey and he'd been trying to get me into the magazine and, and getting into that magazine as you might expect is tricky. <laughs> It seems um, like there's probably a lot of people that want to be yeah, in of it. Yeah, it, it's it's tough. And what is it? Is it a weekly? It's a weekly. Okay, so at least they they've got a lot of pages. There's they a put lot of pages the year, to turn but, out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's getting the 
getting the tap on the shoulder that we'd like to have you in the magazine is really how it's put to you. And, and it's about the most thrilling thing you can hear as a magazine writer. Yeah. So Leo and I have been kicking around something, and I got permission to do a profile of Jack Black, which I was really psyched about, but then it fell, then it fell through. Um, and then I knew Heather Chaplin. Yeah. And, and she's a she's a, a game academic. She's and, a game academic, yeah. and she's awesome. And and she was like the first smart, literary type person that I met that was actually interested in this stuff because it was kind of my secret shame for a while <laughs> that I was playing these games and I don't feel any of that horseshit anymore. But for a while, right. I did because it seemed antithetical to the values of what I devoted my life to. Yeah, well, at I'm, the time, I'm sure it's easy, right? Where it's like because. So I feel like, I, as an outsider to to seeing the essays that you wrote, I feel like there was a point, and it was around the time that the games that you were writing about in Extra Lives started coming out, like Mass Effect and the first Gears of War and Bioshock and Braid and like the kind of 2007... 2008. Yeah. yeah like, eight, really interesting of, shit was happening. And, and, and I, when everybody started their... It's when I started my blog. It's when everybody started their <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Everybody jumped into that space right at that moment. Yeah, and and it seems like uh, I could see at a point before that like turning point that you could be like, oh well, my job, my identity is being a serious author, but what I do when I go home is I just watch a shit ton of Saturday morning cartoons. <laughs> I don't want anybody to know like, that I'm just sitting there with a bowl of cereal just watching Tom and Jerry for hours every yeah. night. But, you know, like, but then there's a point where you're exposed to something that makes you cognizant of, like, no, there's, like, actual, actual value to what I'm spending my time on that isn't being a very serious author and holding on to that, right? And yeah. and saying, I want to actually talk about why this isn't bullshit that I should, I should be hiding from people, like right. why I'm spending my time in a way that's worth spending it, right? Yeah. Um, Don't you think, I mean, right or wrong, there's certain cultural kind of threshold moments where if you publish a serious piece in The New Yorker, which is about a video game artist, that's a thing. Like, that actually matters. That That pushes things forward. In a way, if you get, if Random House publishes a link, a full length book, which is a sort of series of reflective examinations about games, that that is a thing. Like these things add up to being sort of cultural um, victories, if you want to think of them that way. That there's they sort of accumulate over time. And I mean, I, I'm not necessarily saying you have to like constantly make the case for games, or like you have to wait for somebody important to say they're important. But in reality, you sort of did that. I mean, in some ways you helped, among other people, push that forward to the extent that you could actually now see people like NPR cover them on a very regular basis in a very serious way. What don't you think? Um, I mean, if I had anything to do, if I had some small part to do with that, that would be the honor of my life, you know? Um... Because I feel like around that time, similarly, did I feel like like the the New York Times started reviewing games and putting games in the arts section around yeah. then. And yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's one of those things where philosophically, I feel like, you know, fuck your old media validation. <laughs> I don't need you know somebody who doesn't know what a video game is to tell me whether video games are worth thinking about or not. But on the other hand, like you were, I think, saying, Michael. 
there's this there is a practical value to that kind of validation, which is exposure and which is just the ability to make more different kinds of people aware of what's going on. And if that takes the form of, of we, we got this merit badge of we're in a very serious publication and we weren't before, like if that makes you feel like, great, we're validated in some way, that's like very, like, uh, you know, that's not a concrete thing. But just like, okay, there's more human minds that might be finding out about this stuff that wouldn't have before. That's like a, I think, just an absolute net positive. Yeah, and anything to, anything to deprogram the common non-gamer's assumption that these things are mindless yeah. you know, bullshit. And, and your, your blog, I discovered your blog early on, uh, probably pretty, pretty quickly after you started writing it and it was a huge huge inspiration to me and I think I told you this I told you this before when I was working on Extra Lives that you were obviously an intelligent smart thoughtful person and you were writing about these things and you know I don't say this with any animosity but just there's so much writing about this stuff is either kind of dull or impenetrable or boring and and I've noticed this I've done it myself as a critic and I notice it in critics all the time is criticism that's written to sort of show that you're smarter than the developer that made it. Sure, yeah. And that is the least interesting possible criticism you can write. And and uh, I'm not... One of the reasons I'm not going to write any more game reviews is that um, I'm, I'm sick of feeling that part of my mind like go into third gear whenever I'm writing a review. You still take little shots here and there. You can't help it because you see things in games that... Uh, objectively stink but now that I've been doing this on the dev side I now realize that everyone on the team knows when something stinks everyone knows it yep. and reading reviews for the first game that I shipped, Judgment um, all the stuff that like reviewers said about the game not all the stuff some of the stuff that reviewers said about the game that didn't work I knew it didn't work yep. um I wasn't learning anything by reading these reviews. There are generally not a lot of surprises. This is nothing. This is in, in a game review, as far as being a dev goes, I mean, sometimes it's a nice surprise of, oh, they liked it a lot. <laughs> but when somebody's like, this part was jacked up, you're like, I know. You like, didn't want to ship that thing either. You know. You just we just got backed into a corner. We ran out of time. Yeah. We couldn't fix it. If only you knew the the Iliad of woe that lay behind <laughs> that 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 section. That decision about how reloading works, or whatever, you know. <laughs> reloading is always the thing you throw at me when we're talking about this. Really? Yeah, you always say, uh, <laughs> But the Gears of War revolutionized reloading. No, no, and, no, and no one fucking maybe, picked up on it. Maybe that's, maybe that's why I say it, because, like... The act of reload is amazing. thing is, like, yeah, you can't complain about it. Yeah. They, they made reloading interesting. Yeah. Ta-da! <laughs> you know, like, that's a, that's, a, that's a game design victory in the shooter space. <laughs> Um, no, I, I think that I think that stuff like I don't know because it, it's it is really weird. It'll be like, God, we really fucked up weapon switching, and it'll come up in every review and just something that's so mundane that you would just think was a solved problem. Just little things about like people never knew how to do a quick turnaround, and so guys shot them in the back all the time. Oh, why didn't we train that better? You know, it's like the really little things that that everybody picks up on because it's all about feel you know and yeah anyway it's it's weird to to exactly be like 
Yeah, quick turn. That was that was a fucking <laughs> Boy, nightmare. We fucked God, that up. That, yeah. But that was that was months of my life. We, you know, like it's like uh, anyway. Um, but like you said, uh, you you went from uh, being an author who was a gamer who wrote about games to wanting to write for games, um, and I won't. Uh, I'll I'll say so. I have very distinct memories of, so we knew each other. Yes, that's right. We talked about it. Yeah, just, um, we knew each other because, I mean, I guess we knew of each other on the internet. I don't know if we talked before you invited me to do that talk with you in New York in, like, 2009 or something like that. It was after I had shipped, no, it was after Bioshock 2 It was came after out. Minerva's Den. It was after Minerva's Den, okay. So we talked about it. Okay, yeah. So, so it was 2010. It was after my book came out, too. Right, yeah, so it was ex- after Extra Lives and after I had shipped Minerva's Den, and you were invited by, uh, by, by a literary club in New York to talk about video games to their members or, you know, to an audience, um... And there was the idea of if you were to talk to a game developer on stage, that would be an interesting conversation. So you reached out to me, probably because I was in like the blogger space and whatever. Um, and and so we, you know, knew each other. And I remember it was then that I found out that you were trying to transition to actually writing for games. I, I have this distinct memory of being in the two Cameron offices, like in the break room, on the phone with you. And, and basically just being like, how do you, how do I get to write a game? I'm trying to, I'm, 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 me and my writing partner, we're like trying to get on a project. We're good. We know how to write. How do we make a game developer let us write a game for them? And you were like going, you know, you were, you were like working on these very kind of like early stages, like Skunkworks projects that were like not, you know, in, in full production and they were like getting canceled and you were getting moved on to, to something else. And I remember, yeah, you were doing these very early stages of like trying to fight your way into the games industry as a, you know, pure writer with knowledge of the medium and everything and not finding <laughs> any that traction. None. Not not finding that None. to be a welcoming uh, uh, situation to, to be in. And now, you've written games, you shape games, you're like working on multiple games in the present. So there's there's been you know in, in the space of a few years, you got past that point. But like yeah, what what was so a what made you want to actually do writing? For video games, as opposed to just about video games, and yeah, what what was your experience of your first attempts to actually get on a project? I wanted to write four games because I was consistently dissatisfied with the quality of the writing in games. Fair enough. I now realize it's a much more complicated problem than I used to think it was. You now realize there are reasons. <laughs> and I now realize there are many reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you know, shit. Some of the games I've been on have lines in them that I would saw off one of my fingers to fix but um this reminds me of just a really brief anecdote from recording uh porter's voice from nervous den so there's there's lines that are about him as a character and like 
his wife dying and him regretting it and stuff. And we're going through the recording process. And Carl Lumbly is a genius. He's just professional, super professional, really talented, awesome dude to, to work with. And we, you know, we, we recorded uh, a line about, yeah, like Porter's wife having, having died and stuff. And then the next line was, <laughs> was <laughs> thinker. Deploy office defenses, <laughs> and I remember you like got into the the first line and you read it, and then and then he just reads the next, he sees the next line on the page. He just office defenses, and just starts laughing. I'm just like, yeah, both those lines are in the same thing. <laughs> He's sad about his wife, and there's machine guns in his. Uh, I'm sorry. Let's just you know, and it, because there's a total like on on the one hand you want to characterize, on the other hand. Enemies are going to pop out, no. and the office defenses must be deployed, and the player must know that this is occurring. Uh, and there's weird tension, right? It's a video game thing. I mean, it's like the curse and and the, the charm, really, in a way. Yeah, it, 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 it's the constraint. Yeah, and I'm sure, and I, I think that probably as someone just with the controller in the hands, it's like that is one goofy ass line. <laughs> but when you're the developer. You're like, I must convey this. It is what it is. I did my best. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I hear you. Um, but, but yeah, so like, so you, you wanted basically to try and improve what you could in aggregate, which I think is, is totally... It, just, a, it seemed fun. Uh, once seeing yeah. the inside of Epic when I was doing the cliff piece, talking to John Blow, talking to Clint Hawking about the process, about what goes into writing a game. It just seemed fun. Yeah. And I thought, this seems like a really cool, interesting thing. I've never had any interest in writing movies or TV shows or anything like that, but this just really captured my imagination. And Do you um, feel like like you connected deep, more deeply or differently with games than with movies or TV? Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And I found myself thinking about like just noticing um, contextual, the contextuality of lines firing in video games. I started paying very close attention to why certain lines fired, the kind of resting places you would come to on like dialogue trees. Uh, the you know, I just started noticing these conventions in, in game writing that seemed to me a really new, and b um, really hard to execute well, and c just theoretically really interesting yeah and um i just wanted to do it so i met this guy named rob Auten at when i was working on extra lives and i just published this book about vietnam and he was working on a video game adaptation of apocalypse now and rob said you should work on this with me and so we did that and we worked this company called kill space which <laughs> did not last very long you know but sorry if i laughed at the Idea of a it's, company it's, called not, it's not a great name. But we did write a game. We took our names off at the last minute, but we wrote the script for the re re remake of Yar's Revenge. No shit. Yeah. I remember that existing. Yeah, we wrote the... Uh, and the big thing I was happiest with is that we... Uh, Howard Warshaw? Is that his name? The guy who did the original Yar's Revenge for the Atari 2600? We named a character in the game after him, and I was like, <laughs> Easter egg! Oh, that was adorable. No one That's played good. it, but... Uh, so we uh, wrote the script for that, and we were working on Pox now. Then that studio went out of business, and yeah. then we just tried getting on anything. I think that's what you and I talked. We were just trying to get on anything. So yeah. I've gotten a taste, and I was like, I want to do do this. This yeah. is really super interesting. 
This is probably proves though that there is some sort of writing god because you came, you got published so young, so early, so successfully in traditional publishing that you had to be, you had to work harder, and you were punished for that. Like later, because <laughs> most, I mean, you have to admit, you, your success early on in your early twenties, I mean, you're writing for Harper's, you're writing for New Yorker at a very young age. It doesn't happen. That's not like that doesn't just not happen very often. So it's interesting to me that you had to actually fight and struggle. Oh, it was we, a really harder thing. We had to beat our heads against the fucking yeah. door. Yeah. Maybe and, in a way it was good for you. Oh, it's, it's always, that kind of struggle is always good because A, writers get shitty when they start thinking, oh, I'm getting published or getting jobs because I'm so good. It's death. That's when you die. That's when you get lazy and shitty. And I've never, and I hope I never do feel that, but... Um, Rob, we got a phone call. I was in India um, traveling, and Rob sent me an email that I picked up in an internet cafe in Chennai, India, saying Ubisoft wants to talk to us about writing um, a Far Cry game. Far Cry 2 is my favorite game of all time, probably. So I got to the nearest phone as quickly as I could. It was fucking Diwali. There's fireworks exploding everywhere behind me. <laughs> Diwali is like basically the 4th of July with an additional 750 million firecrackers. <laughs> and having this conversation about working on a game in the Far Cry universe with yeah. the guys at UB. And we got that gig, which, you know, I can't really say more than it just didn't ultimately work out. Yeah, but you, you did not write Far Cry 3. For I did not it was, write a, Far Cry it was a 3. thing that was going to... It was a Far Cry thing that was going to exist, and then it didn't end up existing. And then it didn't end up existing. And so we worked on that for a while, and that was just awesome. And then, so from my perspective, it was like we got, you know, we shipped a game technically that we did not that much work on Yard's Revenge, and we took our names off it. And then we worked you got on, it on your resume. You could tell. You could tell someone you were. It talking is not to on my resume. No, but I mean, like, <laughs> but when you were talking to somebody else at that point, who you were it trying was to still, get them, it was still not on my resume. You, you didn't even tell them. No. Wow, okay. So, right. and then we worked... ship titles are important. <laughs> no, I, I know, I know. And then we worked on Apocalypse Now for a while, yeah. and that went away, and then Far Cry fell through. And I, I actually quit playing games. Because um, we tried everything. Rob was reaching out to everyone he knew. I called you, which is basically all I knew at that point. Um, and, um... I think... I don't even remember what I told you. You just said it was hard. <laughs> I, I think I, Thanks, buddy. I, I think I pretty much just said yeah. It's hard, yeah, man. Well, because the thing is, I think there are not a lot of avenues in for a pure writer, and there are no jobs into dev, right? Yeah. And and of all people that could get in, a published author of fiction with a demonstrable deep knowledge of games is like if anybody's should fit the profile, you would think that would be it. And I just don't think that. In I was going to say in AAA games, I don't think in any games, any section of the industry, there is an established way of understanding how to integrate a pure writer into the development of a game successfully. I think that's why so many writers actually come up out of dev, that they were designers, right. you know, and, and, and then it was like, oh, and you can write? Cool. Well, you know, also, and, and, I've, I've talked to enough dev guys now who say they'll never work with another novelist again. Sure. Because novelists are used to a degree of autonomy that is basically freakish. Um, right. It's basically you, a 
copy editor and, and an editor. Yeah. So you you're, you answer to two people, and then the thing exists. And I just think most writers, just like most literary writers, cannot deal with the amount of revision, yeah. the amount of um, non-literary concerns that you have to keep in your head, the yeah. amount of like the reason you can't just write the line you want to write. Right, right, because, and, and you and yeah. you're always constantly answering to, to all these other issues. I've never had a problem with that. And I think one of the reasons for that is that I really like writing for games, but it's not where my true self expresses himself. Right. I do that in my books. So you're kind of not taking it personally when you're working on I do not take it personally. You're doing the job. I'm doing the best job I can. I find it super interesting. I love it, but I'm essentially a carpenter. Yeah. And I make, I'm one of many people trying to make something good. That's something I, I, I was talking to, gosh, it was, some, you know, it was somebody that I, that I worked with. Either it, I think it was Jordan Thomas at Two Came In, near the end of Bioshock Two, who was like, we were, we were having a discussion, and it was like, in game development, writing is a support role. Yeah. And, and I think if you can think of it that way, you can be a very successful writer in the the game space. But I think that is not yeah. how a writer tends to think of what they use their craft for. No, it's it, you're. It's it's writing in games is weird because it's it's the most visible it's one of the most visible parts of the game right and it's one of the parts of the game that the average person is going to be able to grok instantly that and the production design and the yeah. and the, and the art style and that any person can play it and have an opinion on that stuff right not many people are going to have an opinion on like the uh, <laughs> the physics engine or the lighting system or whatever or yeah. the or the, uh, or the radiosity. Or the radiosity, <laughs> or the, or the you know, underlying systems, or the UI, for instance, all these other things right. that are just as important, but much subtler. Yeah. And so I do not, and I never have, and I never will, understand the kind of stuff I'm writing in games as any real expression of my primal artistic self. Because games, all the meaning in a game shouldn't be coming out of the dialogue characters say to each other. It should come out of the combination of that with everything else, right? Yeah. It's 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 a total support role. You're just there to jazz hands all the awkward stuff and cover up for all the, the weird things that happen in game storytelling. And then just in the moments you do get a concentrated little vitamin B12 shot of storytelling to make it just as fucking good and stylish as you can. Yeah, that's that's... You would think that way if you were working on Gears of War Judgment, but you wouldn't think that way if you were going to go home. I mean, you don't think of writing that way in the context of your own game, I presume. Gone Home specifically has so many fewer, so so much less overhead, right? Um, because I think that when you're working on, on Bioshock, I bet I'm going to talk to the guys at Naughty Dog uh, on Monday. I bet that like Neil thought of his job as sure, a writer I've of, talked to Neil of Last of Us yeah. in that way it's a, very per, it's a very personal game for him. It, but also, I'm sure that it was like, I gotta write the thing that Ellie says when you throw the Molotov at that guy. Yeah. Like, yeah. I just need to make that make sense. But then we have this downtime where I can say this line doesn't have any other requirement except say something about the characters. And like you were saying, like this is your opportunity where you can be the pure writer and just say, this line only exists to add value right. experientially. 
now the player is playing and you can be shooting a gun while anything else is happening and I need to write the lines that are when you have the fucking 50 cal rifle and you're fighting off the hordes that are, you know, rushing to, to get the survivors, you know, and it's like sometimes your writing is there to support what's going on on screen and sometimes what go- is going on on screen is your writing, right? Um, and, and yeah, with, with Gone Home, it's like the gameplay and writing were very much yeah, in, in concert. Central to that. But a lot of what was going on on screen was in support of the writing. Yeah. But that's, but that's what I mean. It's like Gone Home was designed so the only elements that were in the games were that, that were in the game were the ones that were there to support the experience of discovering the story. Like, you know, it was very, very focused. We had the luxury of making a game that was small and focused on only doing one thing well. But when your job is to be the guy to make all of the moments that happen in this game that can be looting a corpse or having a tearful, tearful conversation with your daughter or the player Skull needs to know fucking an enemy <laughs> or just like the player needs to know that the ladder to exit the level is up there you know it's like you wear so many different hats and you don't get to just be the the writer's writer for a lot of them yeah you know well I don't mean they're not making these value judgments I mean they're different sorts of experiences AAA games are like incredibly complicated things and really cool and fun to play but you <clears throat> I want to get back to what you said about you don't really find the need to sort of invest your creative energy, your sort of the best creative energy you have uh, as an artist into a game. You save that for your books. But, I mean, if you did focus on another kind of game, a game with less overhead, like as Steve would say. I would love to work on a game like that. Yeah, I mean, you could see yourself. Totally. Your writer, you know. Yeah instincts would be fully engaged. Yeah, absolutely, but, you know, no one is asking me to do, okay. do that yeah. kind of thing. No, I just thought, yeah, I mean, it was, it, yeah, so you could still see it. I mean, if, but the people, the thing is, the people that make really personal games like that, write them themselves. Yeah. Um, you, you know? Yeah, you'd be the last thing you'd want to give up. Right, exactly, and, and so, which is fine by me, but if, if I knew how to make a game myself, I would love to make one, but I think that ship has probably sailed, so... Um, no, less so these days. I mean, if you wanted to take the time, the tools are out there now. The tools weren't necessarily out there, especially not in the form that they're in five years ago. Well, Tom Francis made Gunpoint, right? Right. Yeah. And that's you know, a really, really fucking clever game. He, he busted out the the game maker engine, and like uh, he taught him totally taught himself. Yeah, and he's not like a trained programmer, right? Um, and like uh, I was talking to. Um, Brendan Chung, who made 30 Flights of Loving mm-hmm. and Gravity Bone and Flotilla and, and a Zombie Smasher, and was talking to him about, because he's a one-man show, but he's also not a trained programmer, and he was like, well, I started out making like Quake 2 mods, you know, making maps for Quake 2, and I was like, I really want this one part of how the game works to be different, so I guess I'll open up the code, and it seems like this is the number that's telling me what this thing does, so I'll change that and see what happens and then just went from there to figuring out how to program a game like Adam Zombie Smasher or Flotilla. Just, you know, self-taught through seeing it done one way and then, like, modifying that and understanding, gaining understanding of why it was programmed that way in the first place and, and so on and so forth. And I think those are both fairly deep versions of what we're talking about. But, you know, there's... 
I would throw Kentucky Route Zero into that pile too. As you know, a, a, a writer-centric game that's fairly low overhead. Yeah, and there's a bunch of, I mean, there's a bunch of, like, text, you know, Twine is a total thing now. Like, they wrote, they wrote Kentucky Route Zero using Twine. Did you know that? Like, they prototyped it, or they they integrated Twine into... Yeah, they wrote, they did all of the actual, the narrative, like, part of that game with all the actual, um, the words. Yeah, yeah. Not some of the dialogue, some of it's dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, and then they just planted that into the game. But they used Twine to do it. Yeah. Um, But... I know what you mean, right? Where it's like, because that's—I guess that's—that seems like the hard place to be as a pure writer. Which is like, if you do all the legwork, you can get contracted to work on a really big game that a publisher can afford to pay you for. Which means the only thing you're going to be working on, you know, is big AAA games with a lot of dependencies. And if you don't know how to just make a game yourself, then there aren't any small indie studios out there that are either going to be able to pay you or not just want to be writing the thing themselves because that's why they're making the indie game. Right. And so it seems like that middle ground as a writer in games is really hard to, to navigate. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, there's, just, there's just a gulf, you know. Yeah. Where, um, but I think that it seems like the stuff that you're doing, the mindset that you have where it's like you will apply the skills that you have in that support role and find the places where you can shine and the places where yeah. you can just help prop things up and be a craftsman in that sense and, and like you're like do the thing that you you were saying was why you wanted to get into it in the first place was just take a game that somebody's making and help make it better. Um, I I think I think that, that that there's something that it seems like A it could be really satisfying about that. And B it's just like a noble, humble thing. It's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be another hand with a hammer to make this thing better, I, and that's fucking cool. I like it a lot. Um, it's it's more work than I think I ever imagined. And uh, I think when I wrote that Last of Us review, which was a pretty beleaguered review, because I just talked about the amount of work. Like, I think the line was, people who make these games are basically people who've decided to damage themselves for the benefit of entertainment of others. <laughs> I'd had, no joke, five 18-hour days in a row, uh, and the gig that I'm on right now, where I was just out of my mind. I was, it was just so much shit just to get down and written. Yeah. And I actually flew back to L.A. because I, I was just like, I cannot be here anymore. And so I went back home and played Last of Us and wrote that review, and I was just so absolutely beaten down and I remember I called was it you that I called or was it you maybe where I was like maybe it was Matthew Burns where I was like why the fuck did I ever want to do this <laughs> you know this is so horrible um, I, I think I, I think I was talking to you I think you were telling me about how you were on three projects at once and you were dying dying yeah <laughs> all had that conversation with Tom yeah. no it's the, the last the last six months have been um Really exciting in some sense, but just completely exhausting. Yeah. And, um, and uh, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that the things that I'm on right now, you know, one of them is about a year out, one of them is two years out, one of them is about eight months out, that when I'm done with this run of things, I have a very hard time imagining wanting to do this again. Which, um, which I think is also a totally valid thing. It's like you've had stages in your career that 
the the stage where you went from writing about games to writing some games. Then he actually wrote some, and then they came out, and you contributed to them, and you were like, well, I did that. Yeah. It's not like you have to do that thing for your whole fucking life. Right, right? yeah, exactly. You wanted to do a thing, you did it, and you did it more than once, and, like, that's, you know, it's, I think that's that's really interesting. Seems super valuable. Yeah. But the place where we left off was when you were... You would you would worked on stuff that like hadn't shipped or a very you know small project that that uh, that wasn't really what you wanted to, to be doing, and you were at loose ends. And then obviously you ended I up quit getting, playing games. Yeah, you you're like I'm not touching this shit anymore. Yeah, I, and quit, then, I did. I quit playing games. Yeah, really. and but then the next thing that I'm aware of is that you got hooked back up with with Epic. So a, you did know. Cliff and a bunch of people you had interviewed for your book. So why didn't you? <laughs> why, why was did you just not think to like be like oh maybe they could give me a, a job and B how did you end up like hooking back up with with Epic? I had a lot of game guys tell me that they'd had so many meetings with journalists. Like journalists would come out for an interview or something. And the journalists would end the interview slipping their, their business card, saying, hey, if you ever want anyone to write anything for me, keep me in mind. Huh. And that just always kind of gave me the creep. Sure, okay. So actually going, begging for work, it did not seem like a very viable path okay. to me. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that, but it just... I, 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 more than one person told me this, that nothing turned them off to a writer more quickly than like the stink of, I want to do this, because I think the under... The, on the dev side, there's an unfair assumption that everyone who writes about games journalistically or critically secretly wants to make them. I don't think that's true, but it's definitely something devs say amongst themselves. And it's something that I think they use to contextualize the weird animosity game the games press has for the people who make these games that they profess to love. I'm sure that's true with critics for many... I assume I would assume authors feel that way about literary critics in a lot of cases. Yeah, like people who make movies probably feel that way about movie reviewers. I don't know, right? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's, a, it's just a whole complicated bouillabaisse of emotion, right? And yeah. So I quit playing video games um, for like three months. I was teaching. I was working on this book about the Twelve Apostles again, pretty regularly. And um, I got a call from Microsoft saying, "Do you want to write the deluxe art book that comes with Gears of War 3? And was that because they were like they remember you, know, you were the movies. guy that wrote yeah. about yeah okay and I you know I've always been a big Gears fan something about that franchise just gets me right between the the eyes I just really like it I've always liked it why is it I don't know it's just something about the way the game feels that I just adore you like shooting things um, <laughs> you like chainsawing things you like stomping on things you do no I mean I mean not like I do a, like shooting you things. do you do yeah I enjoy it yeah. I do. And that game does it, like, super incredibly well. Yeah, and the combat in the game is just so fucking gruesome, but also weirdly comic at the same time. And the game walks this really interesting line between, like, unendurable horror and sort of lightheartedness that I've always kind of liked. Yeah. Um, I I feel like it has a really, really great moment-to-moment weight and feel to the character's movement and the way that the animations and the effects and the sounds all convey all the states really crisply where it's like a guy you know he has this big heavy armor and he goes into cover and it's super it it feels like function first where it's like 
it's a really quick animation, but also it 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 feels like there's a physicality to like controlling the character in that world that I think means a lot to yeah. to to your experience of it. Yeah. What you were saying? Uh, so M- Microsoft asked if I want to write the art book to Gears of War three, and I didn't really want to do it. But Rob convinced me to do it. He's like, get in there. You're our Trojan horse, man. Get in there. So <laughs> Buy I'm, that man a drink. He was right. <laughs> so I'm sitting talking to Rod Ferguson, who's since become one of my dearest pals in the world. I love the guy. I'd take a fucking lance for him if I had to. We're sitting in his office. and, and um, This is when he was still at Epic. When he was still at Epic. Yeah. And he just mentioned offhandedly, yeah, we're, look, we're thinking of doing a Gears prequel, and we're, just, we're looking for writers and... You know, we're not having very much luck finding anyone, and I'm like, I'm like, well, I, you know, my co-writer and I, we just did something for UB and didn't neglect to tell him that, you know, <laughs> that we were not invited back. <laughs> um, could we throw our hats into the ring? And he's like, well, have you written? So I said, well, you know, we've done some little bits of stuff, and... So I could tell he was kind of weird about it, and Cliff was kind of weird about it. Like, Cliff brought it up, like don't expect this to go terribly far because I just didn't I just think they assume that you know writing a piece for the New Yorker didn't necessarily mean you had a feel for Gears of War characters and what they needed so they gave us a writing test me me and Rob and some other guys and apparently we fucking killed it because we scored pretty high everyone like numbers it and we I see we scored pretty well yeah we were far and away the what was that what was the writing test they skip you five scenes and they asked you to communicate the following emotions, um, and it was. Do they want you to write cutscenes, or they want you to write like in-game? Both. Okay. Both. And uh, and it was really fun. I really liked it. And we wrote a little, you know, fifteen-page script, and then we got the we got the job. Yeah. So um, that was exciting. You know, like three weeks later, we were actually like working on the thing. Yeah. And it must have been extra exciting because it's like, seems pretty goddamn likely. Is that, like, a Gears yearly sequel? It's like, yeah, it's probably going to go out the door. You know, like, it's probably not going to be one of these things that's going to get shut down. So, like, as someone that wants to actually make a thing that people play, (laughs) you know, it was probably an exciting opportunity. Yeah, yeah, it was great. And then from there, um, just, just, Stuff started happening. You know, I met more people, and and. Um, well, what was so? What was the experience of, of, working on Gears of War Judgment like? Because, so until I worked on Gone Home, I had only ever worked on existing properties, and I think that, I, one of, I think one of my skills is to be very adaptive and to internalize like the requirements of an IP in. Because it's a subjective kind of thing, but it's just like a feel thing, right? But you were in that same situation of like, okay, you've played Gears of War. Now you have to embody what that property means in your writing. What was what, what was your process for for that? Like, how did you approach your played, understanding? Of played it? all the games again. Yeah. Read the comics. Tried reading the Gears of War novels. Um, you did your best. I did my best. <laughs> Um, it's just when I'm reading literary prose, it just can't be about Gears of War, I've, I discovered. You know, no, no offense to the Gears of War novels, but when I'm looking at typeset pages, it cannot be about Gears of War, it turns out. Um, 
We all have our thresholds. We all have our thresholds. Uh, read over Gearspedia, the fan-made wiki site, religiously read all the art books. Yeah. I mean, I know that franchise inside and out at this point. And, and um, we got to create some of our own characters. We got to investigate a corner of the universe that really hadn't been investigated much. So that was, it was really fucking fun. Yeah. Um, and you were working with People Can Fly. People Can Fly. And so what happened, which was the interesting thing about that project, is that everybody in a position of overseeing the writing part of it, like, left. Cliff left, Rod left, Adrian left, Adrian Schmielash left. And so, you know, by the end, it was just me, Rod, and the audio director at Epic. And you, we had, like, total control over the entire, like, writing part of it. We were, there like... Wasn't, there wasn't anybody left to tell you no. No, no, there was no <laughs> one telling us no. Uh, like to me. No, it was awesome, you know. And so all the story stuff in a that military game, coup. <laughs> even, took over, man. even though the game didn't exactly light up critical scoreboards, I really am happy with the work we did because we were working under pretty severe constraints, and I yeah. think we 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 did our best um, within those constraints. And I think it's a I think it's a the, just the moment to moment gunplay in that game. I think it's the, it's the best Gears game. It's just unrelenting and. and I love the previous Gears game, so I say this with affection and respect, but the, the kind of bombastic, melodramatic stuff that the previous Gears games did, I understand a lot of people like them, but the, for me personally, those are the least effective parts of the game. Yeah. And I think we all, making judgment, had a pretty firm idea that that's not what we wanted to do. Gears is a game about shooting monsters. Let's make the game be about that. Everything is just supporting that core experience of marching through beautiful environments, shooting these scary things. Yeah. And so all of that was what we just tried to strip everything out of it and just make it just a pure Gears experience. And so yeah. it, it, it was a real kind of act of self-abnegation as a writer to just sort of give in to that and get out of the player's way. Yeah. And really just try to go completely minimal story-wise and let the actual combat be the story. Yeah. Because unlike most games, when you describe what happens in a game, you're going to describe the cutscene stuff. But in Gears Judgment, when you describe the story, the story is actually what you do. Yeah. You know, first we went to this place and we shot all these guys and we did this. But if you tried to describe the story of Metal Gear Solid 4... It, it, very little of what you described story-wise would be anything that you did. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. and whether or not that's a problem, I don't know. But but we we really tried to make the game be the game and really tried to let the story be a slave to the experience the game gave you. Um, and it just turned out people didn't really want that from Gears. It wasn't what people were expecting, I guess, on some level. Yeah. But did you... Did you, like, how did you find, I guess, how did you like the experience of, you know, like, you were, you did get to make some of your own characters, but you're also writing for established characters, and like you were saying, there is, and I think that, something I think that is true about a lot of um, great pieces of entertainment is the breadth and variety of individual moments that add up to a uniquely all-encompassing tone where there can be intense darkness right up alongside something that's very funny and those two things don't damage each other they help each other Coen it Brothers feels tone. more like our life yeah 
Uh, Coen Brothers for sure. I mean, I would that indicated I did a talk about uh, Billy Wilder's movie The Apartment, which is fucking phenomenal and the funniest, just most outright comical, like weird non sequitur scene in the movie. Hard cut to the scene where Frank Kublik decides to kill herself, and it's just like it's because that's the those things are both happening in the world, you know, and, and anyway, so like you were saying, gruesome, visceral, you know, um, encounters mixed with a sort of strange, dark humor. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, what were, what were your, did you ever like break that down and, you know, have like rules or boundaries or, how did you define that for yourself? Like, what was okay to put in, in gears and what was outside of of, of the feel of, of the property? And I don't know. I, uh, I was trying to make a game. I think I told you this in your podcast. I was trying to make an action game for, like, the really smart 17 or 18-year-old version of myself. Um, and I don't say that, like, snootily. I was trying to... I mean... I was trying to make a game for, like, a really bright early 20s, late teenage dude or chick who's into Gears. Yeah. Um, a kid with taste. A kid with taste, yeah. yeah. And I, we... It's it, it, fun. And, um... It's hard to say that without it seeming dismissive, and I... Do you know what I mean? Um, I, I mean, I think I do, right? Where it's like, you're aiming at what's considered to be the standard target market age bracket, whatever, but for someone that's going to call bullshit on you if you don't actually do a good job. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I forgot your question. Well, just how did how did you internalize the, the tone and walk that, that line, you know, so that you didn't write anything that was too goofy and you also <laughs> didn't, like, go to a place where it was super maudlin and you've lost the, the thread, you know? Because like, Rob, you're, Rob, you're like Rob, distilling that from existing stuff, right? Rob, so. my co-writer, is self-admittedly the king of goof castle. So <laughs> he, he, he has a much zanier, sort of more uh, kind of Looney Tune sense of humor than I do. And, and I tend to be slightly more on the... Like... Bad Sorkin is, I think, the worst thing that I do. <laughs> this kind of really zippy, kind of verbal pyrotechnic back and forth. And, and that's what I think about that. And he, Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's King of Goof Castle, and I'm Bad Sorkin, and that's what we call each other. <laughs> and, um, and so between the two of us, we, we kind of come to a... a, a um, we call each other out for our excesses. Okay. Um, so it's a checks and balances but I, Yeah, but for when it comes to coming up with the tone, I mean, I, 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 I just look at the game for what it is. You play the levels that exist, and it's really just like mapping, what is my experience through this level? What do I think is going to be interesting from a player's perspective? What do I find interesting? What are the nooks and crannies that I can sort of fill in with like more story or make more suggestions? But you, you have nothing until you're actually running through the level. Right. And, yeah, the, yeah. and the project I'm on now, we're doing a lot of writing levels that are in pretty inchoate state and I find it really exhausting because I know those all oh, that shit's just going to get chucked yeah you may as well not write anything really write the idea I guess you write the idea then start building the idea then you yeah, yeah. 
So um, it's really, and I don't know if this is like a particularly enlightened view. It's just the, the only. It's the only view I think you can have is that you just have to play play through the the level, and you write. You go to level at a time because games are made out of order and and all that stuff. And so you're writing the middle of the story before you even really know what the beginning or the end is, and uh, <clears throat> it's it's really just talking to the level designer, figuring out what their intent is, mapping your own intent to them and pushing back when you think they're doing something that doesn't really help you at all and trying to convince them that maybe you have a slightly different take in coming up with something that joins yours in, in his or her vision. But I really view it as working in constant service to what the section you're working on needs. And I'm, I'm all about textural variation. And if you have a bright and sunny level, write against that. If you have a dark, rainy level, write against that. Because um, surprise and, and um, unanticipated stuff, is the, it's, it's the great friend of drama and it's the great friend of uh, like expressive content. And, and um so it's it's really like I had all these grand theories about video game storytelling. I think I've probably shared them with you. They're certainly in extra lives. I don't believe any of them anymore because I think I said this to you on the phone the other night. The problems that you come up against just seem so specific that, that like having any kind of um, what is Casabon in Middlemarch? He has that like the, he has this, some theory of everything that he that he that he refers to all the time. Um, having like a Casabonian theory of everything when it comes to this yeah. is you, you can't have a grand unified theory grand, of, yeah. of, of video game storytelling because you try to apply it to you, you get assigned to a Mass Effect sequel you try to apply it to that well sorry that's got <laughs> yeah. that's got all its own things that are yeah. going to break your, your your theory into a hundred pieces yeah. even writing scenes if a cutscene is like, a, a, if you're in a first-person game and, and it's a scripted event where you're holding the first-person camera, I don't know what to write, because one of the things I'm working on now are cutting between a first-person and third-person camera, and that just totally changes what you, you can do. Yeah. Um, it totally changes the entire presentation, it changes like what you can do story-wise, it changes what kind of dialogue you want to write. And yeah. so it's just a, it's really a moment by moment series of uh, analysis that you got to put your story and your 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 dialogue and game story stuff. I, th I think through. that on some level you can totally. I think I think what you end up the most valuable thing you end up doing is just developing a set of values right. that you can apply to any situation. Yeah. You know, but they, but it becomes very small, right? Like it, it's 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 modular. It's like granular. It's like I value what you know, like letting the player be in control as as much as possible. Or I, you know, so when I can do that, I'll try to do that if it makes sense. You know, or I want you know, it, it's it's like it's like the kind of values like the super super, you know, one on one level like show don't tell you know it's like okay well in any opportunity where i can demonstrate this concept instead of expositing it i will do that you know but when you yeah try to have like something that is large and grand and meant to encompass the entirety of every situation you're going to get yourself into you're going to find endless exceptions um 
where it's just like, well, okay. <laughs> yeah, I used, to, I used to think like, and I've said this just recently on Michael's show, the future of video game storytelling is systems interacting and creating stories on the fly. And I think maybe I still sort of believe that, kind of, but I also don't think it's ever going to happen. And I think that, I think that, that that's sometimes true. Sometimes, it's, it know? happens in glimpses, right? But like I was imagining a whole game that sort of builds its story on the fly depending on what you do, you know, with, a, with enough computational power you can do something like that. But I now kind of think stories are authored. And the magic of games is the hand-holding that the, off, the so-called author and the player do together. And it's the pack you and the player enter into. And I'm always thinking about the player because the uniquely destabilizing influence of the player is the thing that makes game writing different from all other kinds of dramatic writing. Yeah. Working with that, anticipating it, thinking about it, counting on it, working with it, working against it sometimes when you want to. That's where all the fun of writing for this medium comes from. And if you're not constantly keeping that in mind, you're fucked. A. B. Most players want to be told a story. It's just not... It's just picking... How can I put this? I think interpretive agency is just as important as actual player agency. And I think one of the big problems with game stories is they beat you over the head with the assumed moral. And one of the things I loved about Last of Us is that it left me completely at sea as to how I was supposed to feel about any of the decisions that were made. And that seemed like a relatively astounding step for a video game to make, that it just let, it went to the black screen after this 15 and a half hour experience in which you did like horrendously stressful things it let you not really know what to make of that. That was awesome. And I wish more games did that, and, and I hope going forward that I'm going to use that as you know a bit of a tonic to like keep that in mind that interpretive agency is just as important as which path the player takes through. And actually letting those, letting like story not quite, not be quite so... Uh, um, Paragon Renegade, you know? Right. Um, and it's true. I mean, you can't be universally prescriptive, right? You can't, you can't say the future is systems telling stories. And I don't, I think you also can't say the future is we write the story and you find it and that's the whole game. You right. know? And I think that both of those things can happen and can, can coexist and can be good versions of them. But, yeah, totally, like, the player being active in the acquisition and interpretation of authored content, I think, is one powerful way that a story can be differently meaningful in a game than in another type of, of media. I think that, that can be really powerful. And it's, on some level, a slightly more... I think, nuanced interpretation of the potential power of the medium than the very overt games are systems, so the system will be the entire story. Which is another thing that can be super interesting, because, like, you were, you know, you've talked about, like, Dwarf Fortress. You know, you've talked about a player's, uh, 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 you know, um, experience with Spelunky and, you know, how the, the random generation the random generation and, and the, all the players' abilities and their decision-making like is meaningful. 
so obviously there is incredible value on that end, but there is no end all be all, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what what you inevitably discover as you keep going forward and trying to figure out how to like do a good job on the one thing you're working on is that you're like there is an approach for this which is very specific to this and you can't have an approach to everything yeah because games are so different from each other yeah and i mean you you make a liar out of yourself too when you wind up when when quality wins everything right when when something is done extraordinarily well and defeats your idea that that should never happen again right Including cutscenes, which we don't like, except when they're really super well done, which is right. very rare. And, you know, I mean, very tightly authored, very delivered, however you want to describe it, meaning sort of delivery devices, last 15 minutes of Journey, last 15 minutes of Papo and Yo. That stuff is very packaged and delivered to me, even though I'm sort of in control. But it's also the product of a vision that has an artist telling a story behind it that's meant for me. Yeah. And I'm perfectly fine with that if it's done that well. Yeah, I'm sick of the kind of, um, you know, more uh, highfalutin game critic types bend over backwards to go out of their way to insult cutscene-driven cinematic games, even ones that are really good, but because they're sort of, they doctrinally breach some of the core values of those people's understanding of what a good game is. They will just like go out of their way to figure out a way to like write it off, and I'm sick of that. I don't want to do that. That seems like a really dumb way to look at it. But they're done. They're so repetitive, and, and they look. Oh, the voice acting is bad, or whatever you want to say about them. They don't. They're not. They don't give you agency. But you could make the same sort of claims, critical claims against 2D platformers that just don't have anything new at all in that process of going from left to right. That it's not, it's it's not. Whatever the genre specific thing is, or whatever the game design specific thing is that you're upset about, can be done badly across the board. Ex- exhaustion is the stalking horse of every genre. Yeah, genre. yeah, yeah. It really it's is. Like, yeah. yeah, I'm happy with anything that I find engaging. Right? Like, I'm I'm not a I'm not I'm not a developer that wants to make a game that's about cutscenes. But like, I didn't want to skip the cutscenes in The Last of Us. Sure, shit. Wanted to skip the cutscenes in Metal Gear Solid Four, right? And it's like, I, I, I was really interested in the dialogue trees in Walking Dead. Yeah, might not be interested in the dialogue trees in generic fantasy RPG eight. You know, like it. I love generic fantasy RPG eight. So, well, <laughs> that game has a very, very bad rap. I was just using it as an example. <laughs> Um, and, and so, you know, it's like, every, there's an appropriate use for every, every tool. Yeah, and, and, it, and so I'm contradicting myself, I guess, but it, it, it's sort of like kabuki theater, you know? I mean, you, you can have a very, very, very tightly constrained template with very particular rules that you attach to it. And yet, inside that tight world can be beautiful, brilliant things. Yeah. Right. And so it can live. It doesn't have to. It can be a quote unquote museum piece and still be magnificent. Yeah. So I asked this question to one other set of interviewees. I talked to Jake and Sean about this and then I forgot to ever ask it again. Uh, now I'm going to ask you guys. I'll ask both of you guys. So I have this. So there's this feeling, right? There's, I think that there's 
like it started when you were writing, started writing critical stuff and it's continuing I think even more so now I think that lay people non-gamers uh, somebody the last thing they played was Pac-Man or whatever they're hearing this buzz that video games are doing interesting things now so you can't say anything that any of us have worked on but if somebody who was up for it came to you and was like I haven't played video games really hardly at all I played Bejeweled but I hear there's cool stuff going on in video games. What should I go pick up and play? First title. What would you... What would you say? I have a bunch. <clears throat> Portal or Portal 2? Top of the list. Red Dead Redemption. Um... I gotta say, Journey. Yeah. Journey's pretty for a lay person. Fuck that game, is like a perfect game for someone who's like unfamiliar with games to, to just pick up and say, "Oh yeah, I get, I get this. I get what this is doing." Um, I might even, I personally, I might even argue that actually Flower is a better starting point. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I, you go, you finish. I won't interrupt you. Um, well, you just knocked me off my game. So. <laughs> Um, well, it really depends on the person too, right? I mean, sure. And we're 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 working on a lot of assumptions here that like hardware accessibility is not like you can get them on PS3, whatever, right? Like, but yeah, I'm not assuming a super specific individual. Yeah, if it's somebody that you know hates wind or flowers <laughs> or something, like, I don't know. Yeah, but um, all I mean is I think that that flower has a very straightforward and accessible beauty and is even more tactile and direct um, in a way that if you have no context might even be more engaging. But, yeah. I don't know. I always pick Red Dead Redemption because that first feeling you get when you get off the train and you take that horse ride and you get off at the McFarland's ranch and you just ride your horse outside of the country a little bit and you get to that cliff and you can see down over, you know, toward... Armadillo and all, and all that. I've showed people that who don't know what games are, and their their minds are blown. They're like, "Wait a minute, what? You can go to all those places? You can go over there? And like everything you can see, you can go." And people just don't. Like my dad, who's like very anti video game, was looking at that, and he was just like, "It's extraordinary. That's the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. I can't believe it." And I'm like, "I know. It's it's, it's kind of an amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a mind boggling form of entertainment." Yeah. Um, We're not impressed by it anymore. Um, like it's an open world game. Yeah, I, I am <laughs> you know? more impressed by it. I mean, on some level, yeah. It's it. You you sit back and you say, "Whoa!" But as far as gamers go, it's like we've been part of this continuum to where this is the logical conclusion of what's right. happening now. Right. And yeah, coming in from an outside perspective, you know, like you can go in that house is something that if you have no context, it's incredible and it should be more incredible to us <laughs> just on a basic level, but. I mean, what about you, Michael? I have more. I'm just blanking. I don't know why I'm blanking so hard right You'll now. You'll come back to them once Michael starts talking. Yeah. You throw him off his game. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Flower because um, Journey gets all the buzz, and for, rightly so. I mean, I get it, and I've turned a lot of people on the Journey. But, you know, it's interesting the way you ask that question because it's sort of like what I do for a living is what you described. That I, I, I work in a community of people who aren't gamers. My colleagues are not. And even some of the younger ones are sort of, but they've been 
they've been talked out of games because it kills their progress towards their PhD. You know what I mean? Like they've just, if they ever were interested in games, they've been off it for a number of years. They should be spending their time in a more productive manner. Yeah. 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 Sure. Reading so. Lacan. <laughs> or, yeah, other <laughs> time wasters. And, but, um, <clears throat> almost everyone that I could convince to play Flower and, and I could get, that I could get to play it has in one way or another thanked me for it. And it, you, I mean, you were, you said it, I thought beautifully, it's tactile, it's beautiful, it's um, sensory, and it's, um, it's, it's, tra it's transcendent, it, it's, it's uplifting. I think there's a sense about, in the common understanding of games, which is mostly driven by media images of games, which is about shooting and killing and blood fests. And, you know, in that, it just a person who doesn't really understand what video games can do looks at that game for five seconds and it's better if they discover how to control it by themselves sort of accidentally and it, almost every time you get this beautiful little intake of breath like oh my god this is so cool and um, so that would definitely be one um, I think experiential quote-unquote games like whatever we want to call those games I found a lot of I get a lot of traction with Dear Esther um, because I find that a lot of my colleagues and, and students who don't have never played anything but Call of Duty sports games love the idea of just being in this world and exploring it. Um, it's one of the, I think it's probably the best written game I've ever played. Dear Esther. Yeah. How so? It's just beautiful. Yeah. I mean, the script is really good. The um, it's, it's it just seems adult. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems like it was written by adults. Yeah, I mean, and I guess that's sort of, yeah, that's part of the answer, really, is that what you're really doing, because Portal's the other one, I, I, I use Portal in the classroom now, and it's because what you're really saying is, look, I know what you think you think, but these are for adults. I mean, that, in, in a way, that's just the message that Flower and Portal and all these other games say. It's, these are games that you can actually stop and think about and have a really beautiful experience with. And then, and then you feel slightly, slightly heroic for suggesting them, you know, you know, because like you're doing something good. You know, I, I got right after Judgment. I'll never forget this. Right after Judgment came out, Mark Laidlaw um, from from Valve, he wrote Half Life Two. And yeah. So forth. Uh, excuse me. It was Eric Wolf. Wolf. Oh yeah, Eric Wolf from Valve <laughs> Portal. Yes. Eric wrote me an email. Congratulating me, saying, "Hey, congrats on, you know, shipping the Gears Judgment." And I thought it was so nice, and so we got in a little conversation. And he said something that really stuck with me. He's like, "Well, you know, there's probably less than 500 people on the planet that actually know what it's like to write and ship a big AAA game. There's just not that many of us. We all wrestle with the same problems. They're really hard problems. People don't know how hard they are, and and." And I was like, well, I would think you're basically one of the best people at this. And he said something to the effect of it. You know, it's funny you should say it because I really have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and I thought that was just so, such a great thing to hear because he's obviously, you know, one of the best, if not the very best doing this. And, and um, um, hearing from someone of his stature, like, confess, like, I'm fumbling around in the same darkness that, that everyone else is was, was awesome. And he's right. 
every time I'm writing a script, I remind myself of like the privilege it is to feel your way along in this medium that like hardly anyone has gotten a chance to like like there's problems that come up with the you you like may literally be the first problem the first person to ever like try to figure out how to stage this the right way you know what i mean that's exciting yeah that's really exciting yeah for trying to people to yeah yeah and it's like you understand each other and we all have enough kind of game touchstones at this point where we get roughly a sense of when we've seen something done really well. Yeah. But um, just like the line that fires when you enter a new environment, do you do, wow, this looks amazing, or hope there are no bad guys up here. <laughs> What's the other thing you say? What's the other thing you have a character say? And coming up with like ways to make those moments spiky or weird or slightly off kilter, that I mean, that's what makes this so great. And 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 I think Eric, very touchingly, was acknowledging that weirdness of what this is, what it means to do this. Yeah, it's also no fair that we can't talk about. I mean, just listen to my last podcast and you'll know about going home. Uh, what I think about it, I, I that's an important game to me. So I w- I would recommend it even if you're sitting here. Partly because there's a whole group of people who felt alienated by games. People that in the theater community are a big part of what we do. And, and the gays, you mean? Yeah, the gays. Thanks, Tom. And uh, <laughs> the, the set, I have, set with love, yeah, affection. I, I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, My girlfriend's an actor. <laughs> the gays are a big part of our life. It's it's like a new sitcom. The gays. The gays. Um, on NBC. Um, no, no, but I mean, the point is that it, it, it I, in a way, for many years, I have felt like in my own kind of the, com- the community of my, my discipline, I have nothing to offer. I can do flower, but like if you want to talk about the kinds of things that, that the theater often grapples with, you know, Gone Home is actually a pretty important game for reasons you understand. But um, um, I also, if you have a little bit of a savvy gamer, I would recommend Walking Dead. Uh, and I, I would also recommend the new HD um, Wind Waker because I think mm. it's just extraordinarily wonderful. Let me jump in on the going home thing, um, which is to me the whole point of writing fiction is to extend empathy to people you're not. And I love writing about people I'm not. I, a lot of my fiction I write from a woman's perspective just because I find it really invigorating to imagine what it is like to. Uh, to occupy the psychological space of a woman in situations that are made possibly hostile to women. And how better can you as a man ever begin to understand those kinds of problems than than by trying to occupy their space? That I felt as close and gone home to a young, to a teenage girl struggling with her sexuality as I did in that game. Um... And the fact that I was experiencing that while playing a video game, I've had that a lot in short stories, I've had that in novels, never had that feeling in a video game, that I was being invited into the mansion of empathy um, for someone different from me, but not that different from me, because I've been young, I've been in love, struggled with you know, who I am and what, what I believe. <clears throat> that it was just such a gift, and, and I thought you just did the medium a real service by welcoming us into into that and that you, you know, communicated with that. So 
um, that was a, that was a, you did something really great. You did something really, really important. Um, and there are not a lot of games that have tried to open that space up to, 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 to people in, in the game space. That's, it's very sweet of you to say, this is my podcast, so I'm cutting all of that. <laughs> Do not, Do not cut, cut it. it. <laughs> Keep it in. Uh, it's, it's been really great talking about your whole experience as a writer and a writer of games. And thank you, Michael Abbott, for being here to, to uh, help enliven this conversation. It was really, it was really great to be chatting with, with both of you guys about all this stuff. Pleasure, man. Thank you.